through the snow. Christmas bells are ringing. Hello, hello, looters. Happy holidays and welcome to episode 28 of Thief's Monthly Movie Loot, our last episode of the year. So as the year ends, I want to take you down the road of what I saw in the second half of December, but also what I saw through the year 2020. Let's go. A film from the United Arab Emirates. Studying us from afar, extraterrestrials may have viewed changes in the Earth's atmosphere as a symptom. These things, they might have come from a different galaxy, but they're not intergalactic, they're interdimensional. The United Arab Emirates celebrated its independence in December too, so I wanted to check something from there. I didn't know a lot about their films, so I started browsing, and this film called Aerials from 2016 caught my eye. First, because of an image I saw in an article which featured an alien spaceship hovering above some buildings, and then because of the synopsis. The film is set during an alien invasion that has left people baffled as huge spaceships float above cities people are afraid and not sure of what will happen. The focus is on a couple played by Saga al and Anna Drushgina. They're isolated in their apartment which forces them to deal with their cultural differences. Although far from original, this could have been an interesting premise if well executed. Unfortunately, the film is bogged down by a sluggish pace, bad performances, extremely cheap special effects, and a dull, uneventful script. The only thing that saves it is that director S.A. Saidi does manage to create some creepy moments with some eerie visuals and unsettling sounds during some potential alien appearances, but other than that, the film is a bore. A war film. I see ghosts, y'all. I see ghosts. What happens uh, to all of us, man? Have you seen them too? Yeah. Uh, Dad, come to you at night. Huh? Storm and Nam comes to me down there every night. Now he talked to you like he talked to me. Come on. Come I don't on. think so. Come on. Fish up. Get in there, David. Get in there. On YouTube, then. Go ahead. For this category, I went with Spike Lee's The Five Bloods. I had been meaning to watch it since it was released earlier this year, and it finally came to be. The film follows a group of four aging Vietnam vets that travel back to recover the remains of their squad leader, played by Chadwick Boseman, as well as a catch of gold they took from a CIA plane during the war. In their journey, various confrontations and issues among them ensue, as well as past regrets and guilt showcasing the toll that the war has taken on them. The main focus falls on Paul, played by Delroy Lindo, who seems to be the most affected by the war, while also seeming to have motivations different than his friends. Overall, I really like the film. Glee takes his time to set things up during the first half and is helped by some great performances, most notably Lindo and Jonathan Majors, who plays Lindo's son, David. Postman's role is a bit limited since we only see him in flashbacks and dreamlike sequences, but he does carry that magical and ethereal essence that goes with the character. It also makes it all the more shocking to know that he's not with us anymore. 
The cast is rounded out by Clark Peters, Norm Lewis and Isaiah Whitlock Jr. as the other Bloods. They're all competent in their performances, but their characters lack the depth and presence of Lindo. On that same line, I think the film would have benefited of expanding those characters a bit, particularly Otis, played by Peters, since he seems to be the focal point of many of the plot devices of the film. I also don't think that the relationship between Paul and David was built that well, despite how good Lindo and Majors were. The way David is pushed into the plot felt a bit clumsy to me, and there was really no build-up to the emotional baggage that comes later. Some nods and homages to other films and shows felt too on the nose too, particularly the Whitlock shit, which really felt out of place. Regardless of that, Lee does a great job of instilling the film with his accustomed social and racial commentary, while also carrying that message about the long-term effects of any war, from the individual baggage in each of the bloods, to the impact it has on their children, to the baggage on the Vietnamese people they encounter, or ultimately something as literal as the minds that come back to haunt them. But ultimately, I enjoyed the film a lot, even though there are appearances of recovery, which you can see in each of the characters, or even the seemingly booming city, the wounds are still there, and that's the message of the film. Recovery has to go deeper than just the surface and the outward appearance of things and people. The Five Floods is available on Netflix, so check it out. A TV film. She's got a night start on us already. Whoever did this could be halfway to the border by now. Well, at least we know what direction he's going. Now you're part of this posse and we stay together. I had set this challenge criteria at the beginning of the year, but with the popularity of streaming services, it's becoming more challenging to pinpoint films that were made specifically for TV, but I was lucky to find this 1972 western titled A Man for Hanging. Saw it completely devoid of any knowledge and thought it was a pleasant surprise, one of many I've had this month. It's a low-budget, made-for-TV film that follows Avery Porter, played by Peter Breck, a disfigured killer and rapist that roams through the Old West, causing all sorts of mayhem. When he terrorizes two women from a family, their men form a posse and set out to find him at all costs before he reaches the border. Two of the main things this film has in its favor are a simple premise and a short runtime, which is roughly 75 minutes. It's pretty much a cat and mouse game between Porter and the men, and Breck plays it with an effective, vicious glee. The men's performance, played by Paul Carr and David Macklin, are pretty solid, although Macklin did get on my nerves quite a few times. There's also a slight attempt to build a romantic relationship between him and another victim of Porter that's never fully delivered and ultimately unnecessary. Still, I enjoy it very much. I think that anybody that likes westerns might enjoy the low-budget edge this brings to the genre. A Man for Hanging is available in Roku Channel. Any film that starts with the letters W, X, Y, or Z.
Zombies? Yes. They are my servants. Only a pinpoint, a silver one, in a glass of wine, no? or perhaps a flower. Keep it, monsieur. You may change your mind. Not dead. Are you mad? I saw her die. The doctor signed the certificate. I saw them bury her. Zombie! Halevi! Halevi! For this category, I went with 1932's White Zombie. The film follows a young couple that meets in Haiti in order to get married. However, a jealous rival that's smitten with the lady seeks for the help of an evil voodoo master, played by Bela Lugosi, in order to win her. Chose this film because it was short, it's barely over an hour, but I thought it was pretty good. I had read a lot of criticism for its acting, but I really didn't think it was much worse than any other film from the era. Plus, Lugosi is a treat to watch. In addition, what it might lack in the performance department, it more than makes up with a hell of a creepy atmosphere. I also thought that the direction from Victor Halperin was pretty good, with some creative shots. Some of the characters did need a bit fleshing out, particularly Neil, played by John Harron, and the backstory between Madeleine and his paramour Charles could have been a bit expanded. There is a bit of racist and xenophobic undertones as well that might bother some people, and the resolution is too convenient for the benefit of the lead characters. Still, I think the film is worth a watch if only for Lugosi's performance and the great ambience that the film builds. The last film from any deceased director you like. Women don't. They basically just don't think like that. Millions of years of evolution. Right? Right? Men have to stick it in every place they can, but for women, women it is just about security and commitment and whatever the fuck else. A little oversimplified, Alice, but yes, something like that. If you men only knew. I'll tell you what I do know is you got a little stone tonight, you've been trying to pick a fight with me, and now you're trying to make me jealous. But you're not the jealous type, are you? No, I'm not. You've never been jealous about me, have you? No, I haven't. And why haven't you ever been jealous about me? Well, I don't know, Alice. Maybe because you're my wife. Maybe because you're the mother of my child. And I know you would never be unfaithful to me. You are very, very sure of yourself, aren't you? No. I'm sure of you. I thought of exploring something new for this category, but being Christmas season and after listening to a podcast on Kubrick films, I thought why not revisit Stanley Kubrick's Eyes Wide Shut. The film follows married couple Bill and Alice, played by then married couple Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman, as they struggle with newfound insecurities and the realization that their marriage isn't what they thought. I've seen Eyes Wide Shut several times before, but it's been a couple of years since I last saw it. 
I still hold it at number 3 on my Kubrick ranking, but this rewatch reminded me of how great it is. I love how Kubrick sets the stage with a searing confession from Alice, only to send Bill in this surreal and sexualized journey. And although a lot of the focus falls on this mysterious secret society, it is actually the unmasking of Cruz's character and the drop of that facade that should be the focus. Kubrick's direction is impeccable as usual, while the performances from Kidman and Cruz are perfect. I know a lot has been said about Cruz's coldness, but I think it fits perfectly with the theme of coldness and distance, as well as a certain dehumanization, which is one of Kubrick's main themes through his filmography of married people. Great film and a great swan song from the greatest director ever. The last best picture winner you haven't seen. You're not breathing right, that's why you're panting. So it's your birthday, huh? How old does that make you? I'm 32, Mr. Dunn. And I'm here celebrating the fact that I spent another year scraping dishes and waitressing, which is what I've been doing since 13. And according to you, I'll be 37 before I can even throw a decent punch. Which, after working this feedback for a month, out nowhere, I now realize maybe God's simple truth. Other truth is, my brother's in prison, my sister cheats on welfare by pretending one of her babies is still alive, my daddy's dead, and my mama weighs 312 pounds. If I was thinking straight, I'd go back home, find a used trailer, buy a deep fryer and some Oreos. The problem is, this is the only thing I ever felt good doing. If I'm too old for this, then I got nothing. That enough truth to suit you? As I walked down through the last Best Picture winners, 2004's Million Dollar Baby was the first one I hadn't seen from the last 20 years. For some reason, I had unconsciously avoided it. Maybe I didn't care much about the subject matter of boxing, or maybe I was expecting something more Oscar Beatty. But the thing is, I was surprised that it wasn't as much of any of those as I was expecting. The film follows Maggie, played by Hilary Swank, an aspiring boxer that seeks the coaching of trainer Frankie Dunn, played by Clint Eastwood, who is reluctant to take over a girl under his wing. But unsurprisingly, he does take her over and he does develop a bond with her. This is not the first time I've seen a similar premise from Eastwood. All cranky mentor takes over a young protege, but for the most part it's handled pretty well here. I thought that the biggest reason is because of Swank's spunky performance, which adds a lot of energy and liveliness to everything, which makes the ending much more tragic also. Eastwood is his usual growling self, but sells the transition well. The boxing choreographies are well executed and the last act shift, although abrupt, does take the film into more interesting grounds. If anything, I think the portrayal of Maggie's family is too on the nose and over the top. Also, Morgan Freeman, who plays Frankie's friend and employee, won an Oscar for his performance, but as much as I like him and as good as his performance is, I really don't see it. But regardless of that, this was a pleasant surprise and worth the watch. A film about children. Ladies and gentlemen. This is unbelievable. Our heroes have been captured by alien intruders. The heroics have fallen. We need to leave this room. The aliens will be coming for us next. We're going to need your access cards. Like, now. Nothing's getting in. And no one's getting out, either. 
What are these for? To protect your butts when you hit the ground. <laughs> She's got shark strength! If we want to rescue our parents and save the planet, we're going to need to do it now. But we're children. The children are the heroics. Time to be a hero. I'm in. Let's do this. International Children's Day was on December 13, so I wanted to see a film about children. I had a couple of films in mind, but ultimately my kids chose for me, as we saw 2020's We Can Be Heroes. The film follows a group of kids, the children of a group of superheroes called the Heroics, that have to follow their parents' footsteps after an alien invasion ends up capturing them. The film is directed by Robert Rodriguez in a similar vein to his other kid superhero films like Spy Kids and Shark Boy and Lava Girl. Lava Girl's Taylor Dooley even has a supporting performance alongside Pedro Pascal and Sung Kang as some of the heroics. Like I said, this one's on my kids. They had seen it a couple of days ago but asked for it again yesterday, so take that as their endorsement. Just like those other Rodriguez films, the special effects are very playful and kiddie oriented and so is the overall tone. The kids' performances are solid for the most part. Unfortunately, there's not much for an adult to bite at. The plot is extremely simplistic and the resolution feels like a sheet. But if any of you have children, this might be a good choice. A film from Yasujiro Ozu. So, uh...結婚したって初めから幸せじゃないかもしれないさ。結婚していきなり幸せになれると思う考え方がむしろ間違ってるんだよ。幸せは待ってるもんじゃなくて、やっぱり自分たちで作り出すものなんだよ。結婚することが
that was the last film of the year for me. I ended up watching 201 films through the whole year, which is exactly the same amount I watched in 2019. So that's good. And although other podcasters are talking about their best of 2020, I've only seen seven films from the current year. So I will instead share my loot of the top 10 first time watches of 2020. But before that, some words of warning about the bad loot, the worst first time watches of 2020. I'll just mention three films. First, 2008's Vantage Point, which is dumb and a mess from start to finish. Second, Battlefield Earth, which is everything you've ever heard from and then more. And finally, the worst film I saw this year was 2014's Agent Fox, an animated film that has to be one of the stupidest, most nonsensical films I've seen and one that I'm still ashamed I put my kids through. So we warned, stay away from these three. Now for the good loot. My best first time watches of 2020. Number 10, 1999's The Straight Story, a charming and lovely story about getting old and making amends. Number 9, 2019's Jojo Rabbit, which manages to thread that fine line between hilarious comedy and gut-wrenching drama. Number 8, 1967's The Graduate, a sovereign look at how relationships can be and what they ultimately are. Number 7, 2019's Parasite, a masterfully crafted look at social inequality in a way only Bong can do. Number 6, 2016's Hell or High Water, a thrilling ride about people doing what they need to do to survive. Number 5, 2009's Mother, another Bong masterpiece about how far a mother would go to protect her son. Number 4, 2019's Loose, a thought-provoking look into racial stereotypes and prejudices with a masterful performance from Kelvin Harrison. Number 3, 1957's Throne of Blood, a neatly directed retelling of Macbeth through the eyes of Kurosawa. Now, up to this point, the lines are very blurry, ranking was more or less random, all those 8 films were pretty darn good, and I could have placed them in any order, to be honest. But the top 2 was pretty much set in stone, and it was decided yesterday. My second favorite first time watch, 1949's Late Spring, which I just discussed in this episode, which once again was a beautiful and poignant film about father and daughter relationships, marriage and gender roles. But now for my favorite first time watch of 2020. Number one, 1957's Sweet Smell of Success, which I saw in May. I said it back then, but I'll say it again. This is the kind of film that as I watched it, I knew I was watching a masterpiece. So lurid, so emotionally disturbing, and so, so good. Tony Curtis and Burt Lancaster are excellent in the lead roles. This is definitely a masterpiece and one I'm recommending anytime I can. An honorable mention goes to Hamilton, which I'm not counting because it's not a film per se, but one that is really magnificent and a must-see for anyone. So that's it for episode 28 and for 2020. When I started this podcast back in January, all I wanted was to share my thoughts on film so people could get ideas on what to watch and talk about film in general, and I felt I did that and some. I've interacted with some great people and some very cool podcasters through the years, and I want to thank all and each of you that listened to at least one episode through the year. I hope that continues through 2021. We have a lot of great ideas and new things in store for this new year, so keep your eyes and ears open for our next episode so you don't miss it. As usual, you can follow me on Twitter at TiffCGT and at TMML2021, and also on Letterboxd as Tiff12. Once again, Happy New Year to everybody. Tiff's Monthly Movie Loot, signing out.
Christmas bells are ringing. 